You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Andrew, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Don't you think it would have been cool if David had dressed up like Martin Luther, you know, to <laughs> do Reformation Sunday, wearing one of those hats? And, um... I don't know if you've noticed our beautiful, lovely communion table John Bart made for us. And he said, was saying he got a sense of, of the holy, you know, as he was doing that. And I understand what he means. You know, once again, Protestants protesting the place that the Catholic Church had gotten to are classic overreactors. We like to protest everything. But when you're doing something like that, I understand his sense of, uh, of weight in preparing that, making that communion table for him, uh, for us, and for the Lord as well. Um, this week, speaking of uh, serious contemplation, uh, is our day of fasting and prayer. And it just happens to come uh, on Wednesday, one week or six days before the election. We just want to be praying um, this is going to be, it's an interesting message that I'm preaching today. I did not plan this to come at this particular time, but everything just fell into place. And it's going to, you're really going to be surprised when you think about all that happened this past week in the political world. And I am a political junkie. I'm a, I love politics. I just love all aspects of it. And so I'm writing a message about, don't worry so much about politics. <laughs> you know, all of this stuff is, is happening. But we definitely want to come together and pray for our country uh, on Wednesday. So please, from Tuesday after dinner up until Wednesday after we meet, if you're able, fast. I am actually not able to fast during that time. I'm choosing another time between now and then to, to fast. But uh, if you're able to do and come and meet with us, uh, if you would, uh, on Wednesday night at 6.30, please be here. I know that most of the time it's the elders, the deacons, the worship team, maybe a few others. But please be here, if at all possible, Wednesday evening at 6.30. Church, come together. Um, let's, let's plan child care. We need to come together and pray. Okay, Keisha, along with your 789 other responsibilities. You already have child care. Uh, okay, excellent. Yeah, so you don't have to worry about that. Just the other 789 responsibilities this week. Um, one other thing. Um, sorry, this ends up being almost like announcement time, but these are ministry related. Um, David was mentioning the people who are in need in, in our church and talked about last week how so many people are going through a difficult time. Gary and Lisa Pelton have been going through a difficult time for a long time. They're trying to sell their home, and there is so much more to it than just uh, trying to sell their home. There's a lot going on there that, you know, just we don't have time to talk about. And even if we did, it's just not the place to talk about it. But we need help for them. I put something on the city this morning. Uh, if you're able to help on Saturday, Sunday afternoon, maybe even Monday or Tuesday next week, just get in the house ready. Um, we're looking for cleaners, for uh, carpenters. We're looking for electricians, street entertainers. We're looking for everything. 
um, to be at the Peltons. Joe Hunziker is going to be our in-house contact. Contact Joe. It's numbers on the, uh, uh, the city. So pleased to that. And the one last thing I want to mention. Uh, again, if you're new to Grace, whether this place is going to be the place that, <laughs> that, that God plants you more than likely is going to depend on whether or not you get involved in a home group. If you've just been coming on Sunday morning and you haven't been in a home group, you're really missing a huge part of who we are. So let me encourage you to be involved in home groups. And, and I wanted to make mention, especially uh, that there is a new home group, relatively new home group in Spring Lake. Russ and Marguerite uh, Strand lead a group there and at their home. They host one at their home. So if you're interested, find out, go to, go to the website and see about where they are and They've got child care issues. Every home group has child care issues. Uh, Our group has elder care issues. Uh, So we're looking for someone (laughs) to help us with that. You know, years ago, I discovered one of the great things uh, about iTunes. Is that you can find any song that you've ever heard. You can download it and it's yours. That's a great thing about iTunes. I also discovered one of the horrible things about iTunes is that you can find any song you've ever heard and download it, and it's yours. It it cuts both ways. In a similar fashion, one of the great blessings about preaching most Sundays is that I am in the Word all week long. And I, I am there at a deep level, and so I'm sitting with this long before I get up here on Sunday morning. And one of the really great burdens of preaching most Sundays is that the Word is dealing with me, sitting with me, week in and week out. Uh, It's convicting me of sin, calling me to repentance and trust at levels that oftentimes I prefer not to consider. But since the seeds of joy are embedded in the act of repentance, it's far more blessing than burden. I have to tell you this week what a blessing it was to be in the Word considering the interaction between Pilate and Jesus when the Savior was on trial for his life. I was deeply moved when I thought about what Jesus endured for me and the Father's perfect plan. And it was at times just overwhelming. Just thinking about it. Is there anywhere in Scripture that that emphasizes the differences between the two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world? Is there any place where these two kingdoms come into sharper contrast and in John 18 and 19 where this interaction is recorded between Jesus and Pilate? Not only is it recorded, it's given context and nuance There's so much more going on than just the exchange of words between these two men. And if you're going to determine winners and losers of this particular incident, you're going to say, well, okay, if you're going to just look at what happened, you're going to say, well, it looks like the religious leaders and Pilate ended up winning. Jesus was the big loser. (laughs) But even Pilate knew that there was more going on than meets the eye. I doubt he would have considered it a win. 
Pilate was face to face with Jesus. Thus, he was face to face with God. He was face to face with the creator of the universe and the redeemer of men and women. Of course, no one could know that what was happening right then was a big part of of, of God's plan for redemption. Jesus was going to die and that somehow was going to redeem Men and women. Now, a lot of people should have known, but nobody seems to have known. If anybody knew that Jesus was going to die, if anybody did, it was Mary of Bethany. And it's unlikely that she did when she anointed his body for death. But maybe she got it. Nobody else did. What Pilate did know was that he was as much on trial as Jesus, even though he tried very hard to reassure reassure himself, convince himself that he was in charge. The place that Pilate came to is the place to which every single person confronted with Jesus must come, even if the circumstances are not as dramatic as they were for Pilate. Our text today is John 18, verses 28 through chapter 19. Verse 16a, just the first part of verse 16. Because of the length of the text, I'm not going to ask you to stand as we normally do. I'm going to pray. Then we'll just work our way through the text and and afterwards draw some application from this encounter that is so riveting when you look at it in color. Not just black and white, but when you are up close and personal, uh, how impacting this account is. Would you please pray with me? Father, all of us are in the shoes of the one who, in essence, was responsible For Jesus' trial, we have to determine what we're going to do with him. But Lord, in the same way that Pilate discovered, we are the ones on trial. Open our hearts to your word. Make this crystal clear to us. And then Lord, give us hearts to believe, hearts to respond. And hearts that cause us to kneel at the feet of Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer. Bless your word as it is read and preached and absorbed. In Jesus' name, amen. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. The Romans, the Jews, they they operated very early. This could have been before daybreak even. This was very early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusations do you bring against this man? By the way, I said a few weeks ago that The meal on the night before the crucifixion was the Passover meal. That's what almost everyone assumes. This talk, the the early 
ancient writers were not as concerned with precision as we are. And the Passover could very well mean the Passover week. So that's most likely what he's talking about in John. The synoptic gospels all point to the Passover meal being the, the meal at the Last Supper. So, verse 29, Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusations do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Now, you can sense it just by reading the scripture. And I won't go into all the details, but there was a great deal of political gamesmanship going on back and forth. Pilate and um, Jesus were saying things to one another, the religious leaders, I mean, and, and Pilate were, were accusing the other back and forth in very subtle and, 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 and direct ways as well. Make no mistake, Pilate had ultimate authority here, but the Jewish leaders had some leverage, and they were willing to use everything in their arsenal, everything in their bag of tricks to make sure that Jesus was crucified. They hated him with everything in them. In them. They really didn't like the fact that he blasphemed God and that he broke the Sabbath, which attacked the identity of Israel. But even more than that, he made them look like the fools that they were, and they didn't appreciate that. Always think about that before you make somebody look like a fool. <laughs> um, and, and, and so now they were trying to win with Pilate. They wanted Jesus crucified as political and unjust as Pilate was and he was not a good guy even he could see that this trial was a sham verse 31 Pilate said to them take him yourselves and judge him by your own law which of course he knew that they couldn't execute Jesus then the Jews said to him it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death we know your game Pilate this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Even if the Jews took him and stoned him, which they did with Stephen later on, but really, they must have done that out of the view of the Roman authorities because they couldn't do this. And, and Jesus had to die on the cross. That was God's plan all along. <coughs> So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests had delivered you over to me. What have you done? What did you do to deserve this? Now, this is a rather, not rather, this is a very dramatic interchange between the most powerful Roman official in the entire region and a ragged, itinerant, bedraggled, beaten preacher from Nazareth. Well, that's the way it looked to the casual observer. But when Pilate asked Jesus, if he was indeed the king of the Jews, Jesus asked Pilate in so many words, well now, are you saying this because other people have told you this about me or are you curious about my true identity? And that just infuriated Pilate. It's like, who do you, do you know who you're talking to? What have you done? Am I a Jew? 
Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Remember that in the next week and a half. No, correction. Remember that for the rest of your life. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. You recall that Peter had wielded a sword when Jesus was arrested only to be rebuked by the Savior. Jesus never called for his followers to persecute the opponents of Christianity or go to war in his name. Never encouraged anybody to do that. In response to Pilate's question, Jesus said that his kingdom is unseen. It was apples and oranges. We're not talking about the same thing, Pilate. Pilate was discombobulated, though, and jumped all over Jesus' claim to a kingdom. But he was quickly bested in the debate, immediately. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Oh, your kingdom is not of this world. You are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Some pilot says, well, what is truth? Well, now that's a $64 million question, isn't it? What is truth? If God is truth, not only does he disclose truth, he is truth. And Jesus is making this claim before Pilate. Now, the Jews understood exactly what Jesus was saying when he forgave sins. That he was God when he said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm God. <clears throat> when he said, I and the Father are one. They knew that he was saying, I am God. Pilate was picking up on Jesus being from some other place than this world. And being far more powerful. He was beginning to see that he would see it up close and personal in just a little bit. Jesus said, everything that is about to happen has been planned before I was born. But there are several places in the New Testament that associate the truth that believers were chosen before the foundation of the world alongside of his death, burial, and resurrection. This was planned before the world ever began. Without question, Jesus told Pilate that God's truth that was about, to be, was about to be revealed in the events that were unfolding on the brightest, simultaneously the brightest and darkest stage of human history. I came into this world for this purpose. Pilate couldn't have guessed how important this trial was. He knew intuitively, though, that something monumental was happening. So he continued the political wrangling with the Jewish leaders, pulling out all the stuff. After he says, what is truth? He went back outside to the Jews and he told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release to you one man at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out, no, 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 not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. 
Barabbas, we have all ideas. Not only had killed Romans, he had killed Jews. He was a murderer. He was a despised man. He, had a, he was a man that was despised by everyone. And they wanted Barabbas. Chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. By the way, this is most likely, there were three levels of scourging. This first one was most likely the, the least of all. Pilate was just trying to punish him and say, isn't that enough? Come on, look at the guy. But the soldiers got carried away. Hail, king of the Jews. Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! <coughs> Crucify him! Don't you know that they understood the word from Deuteronomy, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. They wanted him crucified. They didn't want to stone him. Even if Pilate was saying, look, I'll let you stone him to death. Just, I don't want to crucify him. But they shouted out, crucify him. He said, take him yourselves and crucify him. For I have, find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die. Because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority <coughs> to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. In other words, the Jews with their intention, the Jewish leaders with their intent for Jesus to die, had a greater responsibility and accountability than Pilate, but Pilate also had accountability. Look, these were chilling words for Pilate to hear. He's already thinking something's going on. This, this man says he has, he, he's, his kingdom is from another world. Now the Jewish leaders tell me he's the son of God. He's claimed to be the son of God. And I try to hold my authority over him. And he says it's been given to me from above. Now Pilate was likely more superstitious than religious in his response. But imagine how it must have sounded to him, especially coupled with his wife's dream that warned Pilate not to condemn Jesus. By the way, look, if you're superstitious, you cannot, you just cannot get a clear understanding of Jesus. Wish I had an umbrella so I could open it in the room. 
and a black cat, you know, to come across. It means nothing. The only time superstition is justified is in sports. You know, so uh, just kidding. Just kidding. But here's Pilate. Just think about the way that his superstitious nature kept him from seeing Jesus. From then on, verse 12, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down at the judgment seat in a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. (laughs) The Jewish leader said that, we have no king but Caesar. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So he delivered him over to be crucified. We're told in Matthew 27 that Pilate sought to wash the guilt of Jesus' death from his conscience by washing his hands and saying, I am free from the blood. I am innocent from the blood of this man. But he failed to kneel to Jesus and thus he was guilty. Two kingdoms, one that is seen, one that is unseen. I have to tell you that there could have been 50 points of application, but I... I I resisted and confined my remarks to five points that define and contrast the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Beginning with, the kingdom of God is now spiritual and will be political. By the way, good news, the clock is broken in the back. So I would have time for 50 if I had chosen to, but um, I do have a clock here. Jesus told Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. And that God's kingdom supersedes the kingdom of this world. I imagine that Pilate took one look look at Jesus. He'd already been beaten by the Sanhedrin. Then his own soldiers beat him. And he says, behold your king. Behold the man. Here is your king, O Israel. I'm sure he was tempted to just throw his head back and laugh uproariously. I'll not try to say words like that on Sunday morning. (laughs) But there was something about Jesus that called for deeper contemplation. I mean, Pilate mocked Jesus, but something was nagging at his heart and mind. When you share the gospel with other people, sometimes they're going to look at you just like Pilate looked at Jesus. Like, really? This is truth? Tell me what good the gospel has done you. How has the gospel helped you? Don't you have cancer? Didn't your child have problems? Aren't you divorced? You're trying to tell me that the gospel is going to improve my life? You know what your response should be? The same as Jesus. 
Don't try to justify yourself. Sometimes your silence will speak far more loudly than any excuses or justification you can give. Those whose hearts are open will respond to the gospel. And a heart that is not open today may very well be open two weeks from now or two years from now. And don't you close it off further by being defensive. Just give the truth. As Jesus stood before Pilate, he said that his kingdom was not of this world. He told Pilate that Pilate could have no authority over him except it was given from above. Remember, even though Jesus was passive before his accusers, he had told them, this is not the end of the story. One day I'm going to return and I will crush my opponents. Crush is the word that he used in the parable. The ruler will come back and he will crush the servants who were opposed. Everything in this life is this great battle that we'll talk about in just a few moments. You are either serving God or serving Satan. Every moment of your life. Look, the nastiness of this present, uh, present presidential campaign is tame in comparison to many battles for power in the history of the world. Jesus will right the wrongs with force, which speaks to our second point. The kingdom of this world is a poor imitation of God's kingdom. Right from the beginning of creation, God established his kingdom on the earth. Adam was his vice regent, commanded to rule over the, the land and the, and the animals. And he was encouraged with uh, commanded with Eve to multiply, be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth. Order was established from the beginning, but we know what happened. Adam's sin and the picture of God's design has been distorted ever since. There's a sense of how it's supposed to be, and that's how we live as the best we can, imitating what was there in the beginning. <clears throat> but sin not only distorts it, it perverts it greatly. When Jesus came as the second Adam, he carried out God's plan for redemption by living the perfect life and then standing before Pilate, silent, just stating the most basic facts and then dying for our sins before being resurrected. Look, if you're into worldly power, this makes no sense at all that Jesus is going to stand before Pilate, be condemned, and die. <clears throat> But if you're a part of the kingdom that cannot be shaken that we, we, we read about in Hebrews 12 not too long ago, then you'll recognize that the absolute best government that man can decide is nothing more than a paltry, sorry imitation of what God established in the beginning. So here's the question. Should a Christian be involved in politics? I would think that Scripture more than allows for such. Although though there is nothing close to a direct command that you need to be involved in politics. I agree with the notion that you should do everything you can to make this world a better place. Should you chide those who refuse to be a part of the political process? I can see absolutely no biblical justification for criticizing those who are not as actively politically minded as you are, who are as politically active as you are. Well, if you, if you, if you uh, 
don't vote for this person. It's like voting for the other person. Well, I've used that argument. I could go on with the lengthy list, but I think you get the point. One thing is for certain. Your political involvement will not save America or the world. It's destined to fall. And it will fail until Jesus returns. Furthermore, the kingdom of this world is controlled by unseen forces. All the Star Wars, Star Trek t- stories, innumerable good versus evil stories are rooted in the reality of spiritual warfare. The battle that's going on all around us that we don't see, that we don't understand, we can't <clears throat> sense At times we sense it, but only if we're spiritually sensitive. The Bible gives those forces names, God and Satan. And make no mistake, we are not dealing with impersonal forces, but real beings. I got to tell you, though, this is not a fair fight. The end is never in doubt or in question. God created Satan. Satan rebelled against God. And this war is going on all around us now. But it will come to its conclusion. Time and again, Satan thinks he's got the upper hand. But not so. So why then all the evil in the world? Well, two answers. One, I'm not God, so I don't know. Two, sin entered the world and it will not be put right until Jesus returns and crushes his enemies. Please don't think that that answer is flippant or uncaring. I mourn. I weep over the pain that is in this world. I do. I I mourn and sorrow greatly. And I mourn over my own sin. I'm not happy with things the way they are. And I'm not satisfied to just say, well, that's just the way it is. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. You know, that's, that's not the point. It is the truth, though. We don't know why all the evil. And over and over again, remember, God calls us above everything else to trust Him when life doesn't make sense. As far as dealing with our own sin, God has made beautiful provision for it. So why do we constantly just live trying to make things work When we just need to confess, God, I know who I am apart from Jesus. Forgive me for even as a believer saying those things, thinking those things, doing those things. And receive his forgiveness and move right on. I also want to address your likely discomfort with the talk of Jesus crushing his enemies. It's just the way it is. It's just the way it is. Again, look, when we live in a country where we have not seen war on our shores, we we did, of course, 9-11, we saw it, we see it here and there. But for the most part, we've never seen war on a widespread scale on our shores in a long, long, long time. And so we begin to forget about that and we think, look, we're... We're advanced, we're educated, we've got so much technology now. 
everything's going to be all. No, it's not. It's look, the world's a mess and Jesus is going to put it right. And it's not going to be pretty if you're not on Jesus side. Don't think the spiritual nature of the kingdom means that all will be forgiven and we'll all enjoy eternal bliss. Look, the, the wrath of man is nothing compared to the wrath of God. Jesus didn't die to save us from ourselves. Jesus died to save us from God's wrath. We had to be spared God's wrath because of our sin. That's why Jesus died. He got in the way of God's wrath. And when he was standing there with Pilate, all of that was going on. Our eternal destiny was hanging in the balance with what Jesus would do. Now, it was determined ahead of time. Still, it was a dramatic moment. The battle that rages in unseen realm, realms impacts every aspect of our lives. And when God makes it right and our eyes are open, you'll be singing His praises. We'll all be singing His praises throughout eternity if we have been born again and belong to Jesus. One of the sessions in this series on outreach is going to last well into next year, well into after the first of the year. We're going to talk about the contrast of Romans 9 and Paul saying, my desire, my deep desire is to see my Jewish brothers and sisters be saved. I would spend eternity in hell if God would allow it. And then in Revelation where the martyrs are saying, how long are you going to put up with this, God? How long are you going to... There's a big difference. Once we see as God sees, once we are perfected in the same way that Jesus is perfect, we'll have a whole different perspective. Ephesians 6, I wanted to read it, but there's not time, talks about the unseen battle that occurs between the two kingdoms. It describes the collision of the two kingdoms when the gospel is preached. So we'll come back to Ephesians 6 later in this series, but it's a good segue into this fourth point. The kingdom of God is already not yet and is never defeated by the kingdom of this world. When Alexander the Great conquered much of the known world, it just seemed that one evil force had replaced another evil force. And the Jewish people, God's covenant people, were yet again at the mercy of another tyrant. Indeed, some of the years following Alexander's rule were, were, some of the, were as bad as it got for the Jews back in the ancient times with Antiochus Epiphanes. Horrible times. But Alexander took the Greek language throughout the ancient European, Middle Eastern, and African world, paving the way for the New Testament to be written in a common language, one that everyone would understand. When Mao Zedong launched his great cultural revolution in 1966 in China, he sought to stamp out all religion. He agreed with Marx, religion's the opiate of the people. And he did a really good job of stamping out almost everything. Not Christianity, though. And then when the restrictions were released and, and, and there's this spiritual hunger from these Chinese people, then Christianity's the only game in town. And there's this great revival going on. And I would not at all be surprised if that's the next resting place for the gospel. That or the Middle East of all places. Places we just don't... Have any sense this is what God is doing in the world? When it looks like Satan is one, he never has. 
We don't like as Americans being pawns in his chess game. But that's what we are. But he's a benevolent chess player. How about that? But it's all for the kingdom. And if God has called you to live with cancer, to live with just disastrous relationships, whatever, he's working his plan. Trust him. Yield to him. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Out of darkness into light, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Praise the Lord. In this last point, in this unlikely juxtaposition of kingdoms is the centerpiece of the kingdom of God. Is the cross of Christ. I suppose this is what amazed Pilate. Wait a minute. Wait, Jesus. Don't you know your life is in my hands? No, it's not. This is the reason that I came into the world. But the cross doesn't guarantee eternal life for all. Only those who repent of their sins and trust Jesus' death as substitution as a substitute payment for their sins. His death on the cross, trusting Him, only then can you be saved. As Jesus told Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must believe Jesus. The cross doesn't mean That God will say, oh, let's just let bygones be bygones. There's so very much at stake in the two kingdoms. And whenever you share the gospel, when you preach the gospel, these kingdoms are colliding. And you you probably think, I can't believe people wouldn't want this free gift. I mean, it's not like we're saying, you got to do this, this, and this, or you're a horrible person. No, we're all horrible people, but Jesus died to save us and to correct that. Wednesday night, the only thing that we are commanded to do with relationship to government other than obey the government is to pray for our leaders. Be here Wednesday night. We're going to leave all the chairs set up just by faith. You're going to all be here Wednesday night at 630 so that we can pray that God's kingdom will be over all. We certainly want to pray, as 1 Timothy 2 tells us, that we might live peaceful, good lives. We want to pray for that because when we do, we're free to share the gospel more. But God is wise. He's all wise. He'll do what He needs to do. Don't be confused about which kingdom is the most important. Going to focus next Sunday on the preaching of the cross as it relates to evangelism. But this morning we're going to close with the reminder that we'll be singing the praises of Jesus throughout eternity and we'll be thinking about his crucifixion. Revelation 5 11 to 14. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders 
the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray. Oh Lord. There's so much in your word that really just doesn't fit with the ways that we are all inclined to think in our day. It's the clash of the kingdoms and we are distracted and caught up in the kingdom of of this world. It's where we live our lives every day. But Lord, pull our hearts, turn our hearts Pull our minds, pull everything up out of us toward the throne where we worship Jesus. So grateful for making a way that we might enter the kingdom of God. Lord, as Martin Luther fell down and said over and over, Jesus, save me. Jesus, save me. Please stand. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.